0: You're listening to The Pointed Nose, a podcast produced by Ofion Media. I'm your host, Adam Rees. In today's episode, I'm joined by Funsho Ogundikpe, the founder and leader of the band Ayetoro, as well as an agriculturalist and man of many other hats. My guest today is Funsho Ogundikpe, the founder, keyboardist, and leader of the Nigeria based Afrobeat group Ayetoro. Uh, this is a group that I believe has five albums to your name, uh, already and a sixth on its way. Uh, it features musicians, not only from all over West Africa, but from the UK, uh, people with Caribbean connections. Um, so it's a really global group in character, at least a, a group that's, you know, got fingerprints from, from all over the black Atlantic, uh, as, as, as Gilroy would say, um, it's a, it's a very international group, uh, in its sound as well. And we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, later in the interview, I'm sure. Um, but Funcho is not only a musician, of course, um, some people, uh, who follow the band will be aware that he actually studied law, um, and I believe practiced for, for some number of years as a lawyer before making the change, uh, over to, to playing music professionally. Um, and, and there are other pursuits as well. Uh, Funcho, you've recently established yourself, uh, As an agriculturalist with the Ayetoro Farms project, which is a community farming project that I uh, hope to ask you about as well, Um, you're speaking to me today from London. So, so thank you so much for for joining me. Um, And I'll start with a very simple question. Uh, I mentioned that uh, you went from being a lawyer to being a musician. No. Can you talk?
1: I I went from being a lawyer to being a merchant banker to being a a stockbroker to being a musician, so.
0: Wow, okay. Well, so so talk to me about that set of transitions, if you would, and maybe we can start there.
1: Things, life happens, you know, things happen. So it's it's always been a journey, and along the way, you, you pick up different things, you do different things, you know. When you're young, you, I mean, for me, education was, what getting a degree um planning what else to do so i wanted to um i don't know let's just say yeah things happen
0: so and and what is it about music specifically uh i mean that that you felt that that this field of practice is so important that it's something you wanted to dedicate yourself to in some way
1: I dedicate myself to, music has always been there, so I won't say I've dedicated myself to music more than I've dedicated myself to other things, you know. Let's just say music is strong enough to command your attention. That's (laughs) cool. Because you don't know me as a parent, you know, as a Mm. father, Mm.
0: or
1: as a member of a community. Uh, or as other things, so but it's music. So probably music commands attention. It's an art, so it gets out there.
0: Mm. That's true. That's very true. Um, well, I'd like to start by asking you uh, about the group, uh, but certainly I don't want to limit the entire interview uh, to just that range of topics, uh, because as you said, you're you're a much fuller person than than just a musician alone. Um, I'll start by asking about the name of the group Ayetoro. can can you talk about that a little bit
1: Ayatoru, uh, yes loosely translated it means in english a world of peace but then it can it can also mean order you know an orderly thing uh, order
0: mm. and so so uh I mean, what is it about that concept that, that moved you enough to choose the, the title for the band?
1: Mm. There were one or two communities in Nigeria established by Yoruba people. These communities were post-independence. They had a communal basis to everything they did. People actually decided to leave the urban areas and go and form these towns, you know, with varying degrees of success. But for me, it was um, an eye-opener to what you could do if you did things in a communal way. So I chose the name um, for the band.
0: You know, I always wonder for these groups um, that, like, I mean, it seems like it would, you know, the logistics of recording uh, a band like yours you have to have some kind of personnel turnover. It, it's not going to be that the first record and the second, third, fourth, fifth record have exactly the same uh, musicians on them. What is it like um, as a band leader, kind of managing a project that works in that way?
1: It's very, it's very rewarding um, to the band leader. <laughs> <laughs> Because you get to play with people in different contexts, different countries. You, um, there's a cartoon. Let me see. There's a cartoon series. It's uh, I've forgotten what it is now, but um, there are this little it, it's almost like you know, you can join things together, building um, you building blocks to make a bigger thing. Uh, So um, to give you the example of what I'm trying to say, we once had to play in in Cape Town uh, for a festival and members of this collective from the UK, from Ghana and from Nigeria, flew to Cape Town at different times. We met about three days before the set of concerts, you know, and rehearsed together. So I'm the common denominator, you know, in the whole thing. But then, these kind of things happen when we all do meet and and bring out something. But then we also have local variants. So there's the Nigerian group, um, there's the Ghanaian group, there's the UK group. They all sound different, you know? Uh, So sometimes it's best when we have albums to mix everything together. Money, uh, time, and, you know, luck permitting.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. And I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, you look back on, um, some of the, some of the classic jazz albums, let's say from the fifties and sixties from the United States. And you'll realize that, you know, some famous album was actually cobbled together from a couple different dates. Uh, and maybe, you know, these tracks, uh, had a different bass player, or a drummer or pianist than these tracks. Um, yeah I mean there's there's a long tradition of that in music, so it's it's always interesting. I mean I feel like you're one example or Ayetoro is one example of a group that really makes that work. so it's, it's interesting to hear uh, the musicians' reflection on that process. does does you know the the mis- the mixing and kind of uh, you know all, all those production uh, steps? Become a very significant part of the process uh, in order to achieve that, or how do you how do you really do it concretely? If I can ask that way,
1: mm, we've been fortunate; I've been able to work with some incredible sound masters. You know, uh, my friend, um, the late Mike Collins, who actually um, used to live in London, did a lot of recording work for me. Um, on the Aitor project. And when you have close working relationships with people um, like him and also like my friend in Accra, Panjianov, um, who I'm sure you know, um, it it becomes more than just uh, a working gig. It's a close relationship. So you tend to trade files a lot, you tend to project, you tend to talk about how the music should sound like, um, what you need to pull it off, you know? And then that happens.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. I, it's interesting too. I mean, you mentioned, um, Panji. Uh, yeah, actually I, I was, I was lucky enough to meet him, uh, the last time I was in Accra. Um, and we, we have some mutual friends as well. Um, I wonder, you know, for, for some of our listeners in the United States who maybe they love the sound of, uh, you know, some of the music that's, that's coming out of, uh, you know, that's got his, uh, stamp on it or, or, Ayatoro's music or anything like that, but who aren't so familiar with the kind of the music scenes, the social context out of, uh, out of which this music is arising. I mean, can you, can you characterize the scene in Accra or the scene in Lagos as, as, as it appears to you?
1: What kind of scene?
0: Let's say like, well, well, that's why I asked the question in an open-ended way, because I think that, people in the u s bring assumptions that uh the way being a musician operates in another country is is somehow similar to how it is here or or how, whatever assumptions they bring i'd like to i'd like to see how you in, in
1: many ways in many ways um, the assumptions might be correct in certain instances might not in certain you know instances we we believe this is 2021, you know, we a lot of things have happened. Um, there has been globalization of music, globalization of the uh, music education as well. So now you tend to have, um, in m- many countries around the world, people know Berkeley, for example. Musicians aspire to go to Berkeley. People have the Berkeley kind of idea of music played by trained musicians who've been to the conservatory or have gone to school to study jazz and you know um, that so yes if you if, if you were to encounter that scene in accra or lagos and they do exist then the musicians there the way they work is no different from the way they work in the states depending on on volume of gigs and whatever but then there are other other music scenes there are the local musicians you know the ones who are probably more grounded in the local communities, the guys who play at the weddings, the guys who play funerals, um, the master drummers, you know, they are members of communities. For them, music might not be a bourgeois thing. Music has has always been that they've probably um, picked up these instruments because it's been something their families do. Or something passed on, you know, from father to son, for example. So I mean, yes, then that scene is different to what you have in the states. But again, it's also a scene that might be replicated in Afghanistan, for example, in, in India, in, in, in any place where you have a, a long history and tradition of indigenous culture. so so there, there, there are no no answers. Yes, no, you know, it's, that's irrelevant really.
0: No, that's, that's actually a very enlightening answer. So, so, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, you know, another, another question that, that, that comes to mind, um, you know, one thing that I find so interesting about Ayetoro is, is really the way that, um, to me on, on a, on a pretty deep, uh, level, uh, you've, you've, Take an Afrobeat and then kind of reinfused the talking drum into it um, in a way that I'm not going to say that it hasn't been used in 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 Afrobeat before or anything like that. But to me, there's something really characteristic about Ayetro's sound with the talking drum uh, on on those recordings when you when you incorporate it. So uh, I wonder if you can talk about the presence of that instrument in in your music or your connection to that instrument. Um...
1: My earliest memories of music, you know? Of music from my home, growing up as a young, you know, a child is my father's record collection. Obviously had to have a large amount of Yoruba music because I come from a Yoruba family. So that's the first thing. I grew up listening to people like King Sonia Dei, Ebenezer Obey. And, you know? All these musics had first and foremost, a very strong Yoruba traditional bass and the talking drum in different forms, you know, played a rich part. Um, by the time I became a teenager and listened to funk, jazz, other kinds of music got into what you call Afrobeat. Um, after one or two records, I realized I wanted to hear that sound. You know, that sound, the sound I used to hear on the Ebenezer Be records, on the King Sonya Records, the Ayn Lauma, yes. So, um, it was a no-brainer, really. Also, um, a few years before I started my record career, Majek Fashek, the Nigerian musician, had already shown me how to incorporate the talking drum into Afrobeat, reggae, or whatever form it was. Uh, he had an album, um, not Prisoners of Conscience, the one after that, um, it was on Interscope um, in the US. So he had a song called Ja People. That was I found that interesting.
0: Yeah, it's something. Um... I mean, uh, I'm editorializing here. It won't be very interesting for the listener, but it's it's something so uh, powerful to me. I mean, the sound of multiple talking drums layered up playing the same part. Um, I mean, on a recording, it, it's very very difficult to replicate the force of that sound uh, with any other instrument or set of instruments. So it's 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 really nice to hear uh, what you've what you've what direction you've taken. Your band by incorporating that. Um, You mentioned a few of your musical influences, um, but I know that I know that you listen to a lot of other music um, beyond just Yoruba music or Nigerian music, and that you also take a lot of influence, um, artistic influence, you know, from artists who were were not musicians uh, or were not strictly musicians. So with your permission, I'd like to kind of uh, read off a list of names and, and each name you can if you if you have any reaction you can you can give it. Go ahead. So let's let's start. Um, I'll start with Archie Shepp.
1: <laughs> Mr. Shep is um, Mr. Shep is Mr. Shep. He's a grand old man, you know been there, done it all, I think. Um with people like this, you, you the word is gravitas, you know. You do you get you you get a sense of um someone who's explored he's explored the outer reaches of the form of jazz, but he also came back and played deep in the African American music tradition, you know. Um and, and the older he gets the, the more you understand that music is not just for entertainment. It's a life force and it, it, must be, it, it must be treated with respect. And the musician or the composer or the person playing, participating in that ritual of creating music, has to treat him or herself with the utmost respect as well. Not to mention, play simply great music, you know.
0: Yeah, truly. I mean, when they speak about the consummate artist, uh, the word you used, gravitas. I mean, that's that's really the best word I think to to describe the man. He's, uh, you know, I, I often say, in my capacity as a radio DJ, when I play his stuff on the air, that uh, I believe he's the United States' greatest living artist. So uh, it's, it's, it's really nice to hear you share those, uh, those words about him. Uh, I'll, I'll throw another name at you. Usman Simban.
1: You are starting with the grand old man. <laughs> yeah. Um, his background, you know, the fact that he, he chose the side of the walking man. Um, in his art is for me the, probably the most important thing. At times in, in the world we live in, it's very tempting to concentrate on just aesthetic choices, to think of ourselves as wonderful musicians or filmmakers or painters simply because we have talent and we can be self-indulgent. But for Sembeneus man, you know, um, he put his considerable talent at the disposal of his people. You know, chronicling history and making important points. And we should never forget that that the the artist has um, a duty. You know, to speak some kind of truth sometimes their are truth sometimes universal truth you know but to always note that art is ultimately a communal thing so it should be for the benefit of the people if it is for the benefit of the people then it should be truly something that's important and something that is life-affirming and so people like Sebenius Man, with their films and the questions they ask you know, they show us many pointers, possibilities and ask many questions which sometimes we don't have the courage or the luck to have the opportunity of asking
0: hmm. yeah i mean it's 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 amazing too that when you watch one of his films it's I mean, it's as densely packed as it could possibly be with meaning at every level. I mean, some Multi- passing multiple,
1: multiple layers, and mm. I especially enjoy that.
0: Yeah, it's it's an incredible uh, form of storytelling. Uh, I'm gonna keep going with the with the big guys, you know. Uh, so so get ready to give me another big answer. Uh, I want to ask about Yusef Latif.
1: Oh. He's great, you know. You're talking about people for whom music was a spiritual thing. Uh, who took it upon themselves to, to live and play the right way. You know, there's no self-indulgence there, you know. And that's the thing. And so he's a great example to younger musicians, Mr. Youssef. But he, I don't know if you know, he, he came to study in Nigeria for like a year or two.
0: Yeah. In uh, fact, uh, the album that he recorded there, I have a copy. It's, it's, one of my, it's one of my favorites. A lot
1: of musicians love that album, you know, mm. especially his use of the rhythms. And um, it's a pity that uh, because of the way the world works, you know, a lot of stuff that was done by the radical jazz musicians um, wasn't really exposed back in Africa. So you have to come to Europe or some small labels now to find, you know, out what's happening. But that's a, that's what you call a seminal album. That one,
0: mm. yeah, really, really groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, his his uh, his influence certainly lives on in the American scene. Um, I, I can say that much, you know, the Adam Rudolph and the Go Organic Orchestra. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, people, I think in different ways uh, and in their own ways carrying on his legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to get your opinion on Abdullah Ibrahim, dollar brand.
1: Menenberg is where it's all lot. You know, what can you say about people like this though? It seems all the, it's interesting. It also says a lot about you. I think um, the guys who you are throwing at me now from Shep to Usman to Latif to Abdullah Ibrahim. Yeah, his music is always peaceful. No matter the tempo you know, there is, um, yeah, also deeply, again, I mean, you don't want to overuse the word spiritual, you know, but these guy, this guys were quiet. And at some point in time, it seems each of them found his way, a way to be one with the universe, you know. And that obviously affected everything they have done. I loved his work with Ekaya. I still do. He he, he introduced a lot of a lot of uh, um, young, then young musicians to the world. Carlos Ward, the saxophone player. Yeah,
0: they have they have a couple of wonderful recordings together.
1: And then also, I mean, from South Africa, you know of his work with um, the Piestos and people like Basil, Basil Kotze.
0: yeah. Yeah. Another, another South African musician, I would just love to get your two cents on while we're on the topic um, is Johnny Gianni, Gianni, the, the bassist originally from the blue notes and then from so many other uh, groups and his own projects.
1: Um, I haven't really studied him much. I know he was a larger than life character because I have read a few things about him, you know, uh, but I really wouldn't say I know. Um, but I know as a bass player, he held it down. You know, there is a way the South Africans play their music, which is incredible. Especially, you know, what they just use three, three, four chords to do. You know, it sounds like high life, but it's not high life. It sounds like blues, it's not blues. It sounds like jazz, but it's all fused together. You know. Um, with some feeling and then where they use their kind of gospel chords as well to play. So
0: yeah, and 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 getting back to uh you know to your what you were saying a minute ago about Abdullah Ibrahim, I mean, in any tempo that he's playing, it's just full blast, you know, gospel, uh you know, at the spirit level, it's it's yeah.
1: Always, always at the spirit level.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well I'll I'll just put one more to you. I think actually I don't know if you mentioned his name about 10 minutes ago. Um, you know, a, a well-known Nigerian musician, uh, Sonny Okusum.
1: Oh, wow. I, I also grew up listening to his albums, you know. Um, a lot of his albums. He, he, um, he had something. Like many... It was a generational thing. For people like Sonny Okosun, Fela, Kuti, Sonnyade, having their individual sound was important to them. It made for a rich music scene because when you had a Sonny Okosun album, you knew it was him. You didn't have to hear his voice to know he had a sound. The way his drummer played, the way the basses, the rhythms they used, um, same for Fela, same for... Sonia Day, same for Ebenezer Obey. I mean, Obey and Sonia Day were playing Juju the same genre, but each time you had their albums, you knew within like maybe the first 16 bars, you knew this was Sonia Day, probably because it would have much more uh, uh, guitar work. But then if you had an Ebenezer Obey, it also had that thing Abdullah Ibrahim had, always had that coolness, the calmness. So you could differentiate, you know, so it was important for them to all have their sound. So Sonio Kosunto had a great individual sound you know, that was, he was able to translate into his records. It um, seems like Fire in Soweto, Papa's Land. His rhythm section was also um, famous, or at least well respected in the musician's community. Mosko Egbe, his drummer, Johnny Wood, the keyboardist, you know. I mean, these are guys who are not known, they're not out there, they were just the musicians. But then if you buy his records, you see their names on on liner notes. And then those of us who play, we know we respect them because we listen to what they do. And you can see how they manipulate the sound to create the grooves that Okosun uses.
0: That's, that's that's really interesting. Um, and I realized as you were answering that question that, that my listeners will wonder what's wrong with me uh, if I don't also ask you about Fela Kuti. So, <laughs> so let me do that.
1: Fela was an important part of... Is an important part of Nigerian musical history, you know. Um, no denying that. It's, it's therefore... He also played an important part of, um, in... In being, in being there so that younger musicians could come and for a period, his band was like uh, the hothouse where you went to cut your teeth if you wanted to play, for example, Afrobeat. Because we had this tradition in Nigeria where these guys all had their sounds, if you wanted to learn how to play Sonny Okosun's kind of music, you had to go sit in with his band. You had to go check them out, you know, either play as a sideman for some gigs or you just sit in occasionally. Same with Fellas Band. Because a lot of the guys in Fellas Band had a um, respect for jazz music, there was more of that improvisational thing where many of us younger guys could go and sit in with the Egypt 80, which is where my journey into what you call Afrobeat started. Um, because his band was, was there, as a young musician I could go and ask the band leader, oh, can I sit in on this track? And once you learn the chords and the changes, if it's more than one, one chord or two chords, you know, you, then you, you sit in, you play. And then you you move on. You get to know a few more tunes. Sometimes you play when it's there. Sometimes you play when, you know, it's just the band jamming. Um, so he, he was important in that way. I mean, the rest, your listeners probably know the politics, the you know, the things the record companies want them to know and all of that. So,
0: yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, one, last, well, one last question on, um, sort of on the group and then I'll move on to, uh, to a couple other things. Um, but, you know, actually, and, and this is a story that, that, you know, but I'll, I'll just repeat it uh, for the sake of everyone else. Um, The way I found out about your group was I was actually on YouTube looking for, you know, some kind of interviews or videos uh, with the Congolese author, Sonny Labutansi. And a track popped up from your group uh, because you had actually, I think, dedicated the song to him or it's I mean, at least his name is in the title. It's Um,
1: It's written for him specifically.
0: Okay, great, great. Yeah, so, so I want to ask you first about uh, your connection to Tansi, but then also literature in general. You know, you, you were the one who uh, recommended me to read this remarkable book, uh, Le Devoir de Violence, Bound to Violence, uh, by the Malian author Jambo Um So talk about your, your own connection to literature and, and the connection between your music and, and some of these literary greats. Um...
1: Art inspires me, simple, in whatever form. Paintings do, um, books do, you know, music obviously does. Uh, I've always liked reading. When I was younger, I, I started and something I haven't um, stopped doing. So I discovered Sony La quite a while back and I like his books and I read about him and I, his life was tragically cut short, you know, that um, of him and his wife, but he was one of our important writers. He, 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 he was, he still is, even though he's, he's late, you know, um, so it, it was something I've always wanted to do and I'm glad we did that. We were also able to do it by writing in Congolese which happened because I met a, a Congolese um, singer somewhere in London about a few years back and, and we decided to do this, so. As for Yambo Ologuen, um, he's been described as our bossiest ever writer, you know? And um, apart from the fact that he, he didn't write much, you've read Le Devoir de Violence, so, I think you should just tell you should, you should tell your your listeners about
0: <laughs> it. <laughs> I mean that book. I don't know. Just just check it out. That's that's all I can say. Check it out and 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 don't blame me if it traumatizes you.
1: Damn. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will enjoy it. I'm sure they
0: yeah. will. Yeah. No, it's it's really a deep uh, a deep work.
1: Yeah. So so that's it. so literature really influences and it, it not influences it inspires me you know, but again, so does all art. So does all art. And you find that in almost every endeavor the human being does can be artistic, if we want to. The art of cooking, the art of walking, you know, art of even drinking water can be a graceful, elegant thing. So if we if we look for the best in ourselves in art, then every piece of art or everything should inspire the true artist.
0: Yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice sentiment. shift now and and ask you about something that I mentioned at the very top uh, of the interview when I was introducing you, uh, which is that you've established or been part of establishing um, something called Ayatoro Farms. Can you tell me a little bit about this project and, and what its goals are?
1: It has no goals. It's not even a project. It just is. food security is important in the world we live in now you know because as humans we've really done our best to be wasteful so it's time we all realized that and so I I could sit down and spin some long yarn you know but I just like growing my own food so we'll take it from there
0: and its my understanding it's not just you alone growing food for yourself alone, right?
1: no, it's um because we are members of a the community there are other farmers who are who who are around we also have a few young musicians as well who you know join in. so we we all learn and we're, so we're doing this thing. The coming years will tell how successful we are so it's best to wait until we can see
0: yeah that's that's very um <clears throat> sensible not to count your chickens before they hatch so to speak um well because like you said is 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 not a product a project it's just food uh so i i don't want to ask you to get too philosophical about it but at the risk of doing exactly that i mean <laughs> i wonder if you can comment on the fact that you're not the only uh person of, of, you know, let's say your generation or even the next generation down in West Africa who's decided to, to yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to farming. So, so uh, can you say anything about that?
1: I think it's a global thing, you know. I, I, I don't think we should um, focus on West Africa or Africa. I think it's a global thing. I think people all over the world are realizing certain things now. First of all, that the price of food is getting too expensive. It's the average working class person. Can you imagine, can you estimate now how much they spend? What percentage of their wages goes on food? Globally. Yeah. Just an an average.
0: Could be, I don't know, 20% or more. In the US, in the US rent is 50%. So so I don't know, or more than 50% for a lot of people. So I don't know how much room there is for food to eat up Aha. from the budget, you see. So we get to another problem. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I'm curious what the number is actually. I, I didn't hear it. I'm
1: thinking sometimes might go to 50%, you know? Hmm yeah because uh, you have i mean food is so important and you we all have to eat we all have to so if if you when when i was growing up it was normal for our mothers to have vegetable gardens you know tomatoes peppers okra different kinds of um, vegetables, you know, were grown. It was, I think, probably much later as society became more urbanized and globalization setting, that people stopped taking these things, you know, as as a normal part of their lives. But now we're at the other extreme where Farmers in West Africa, for example, like farmers in Latin America, are having to face cartels who are dumping products, You know, who are dumping cheap products in their markets, undermining their labor and making them impoverished. So it's a global thing. And the solution can only come globally, it can't come locally anymore because we are facing the same enemies. You know it's the same problem in, in most countries now so i wouldn't say those of us in west africa are doing anything people in latin america or in the maghreb or even in south asia are not doing because there is a it's as a growing consensus now that people have to return to the land and so you know maybe we can talk about that
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll love to hear about it. And, and, and just one reflection on what you were saying. I mean, um, when I first arrived in Accra 2012, people were talking just, you know, kind of generally and widely about rising food prices that, you know, two years ago or three years ago, the price for this food stuff was X amount. And now it's, it's this much higher. And it it struck me um, because, you know, Myself and a lot of my friends in the United States had been observing exactly the same thing uh, over roughly the same time period. So when you talk about it as a global phenomenon, um, it, yeah, just just to drive home that it it, it really truly is uh, something global. But, but what are your thoughts on Back to the Land? Yeah, I'm curious to hear about that.
1: What do you mean? Or how do you mean?
0: I mean, like... Well, I I don't know because you were like, we can talk about that. So I was, I was curious to just shake more insights out of you. Yes. But
1: how do you mean? How do you like, mean?
0: is it, is it something that um? do you see it being something that, that right now is just being experimented in and then we'll come out with, with systematic ways for more people to practice it? Or will it just be like some people start doing it here? Some people start doing it here and that will be, the best way to move forward
1: no one knows we've just um we are still in the middle or probably towards the end of a pandemic you know so that that situates things you know global supply chains have been disrupted life has been disrupted so there's there still is something chaotic about what is going on now um so it's, it's, it's not gonna be easy to just you know um, make a wild guess or make any kind of guesses right now. We, governments and people, the focus right now is still on solving this. So there are no, I haven't seen people come up with any long-term policies about what next to do. But hey, after chaos, there comes order so maybe we should allow everything to just happen and see what happens after this. But um, having said that, Cuba is an island of how many million people?
0: Uh, I'm not sure the population off the top of my head, sorry.
1: Um, I know, for example, that necessity became the model of invention for them. when you can't import fertilizers, you have to make your own. If you can't import baked beans, you're gonna have to make yours. So I think this whole thing will sort itself out. Once the human being can respond to the challenge, we will solve it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, and a a couple just a couple of specific, uh, more questions about Ayatora farms. I mean, I'm just curious what you're growing, what methods you're using, you know, Um, those, those kinds of basic questions.
1: Completely organic. Um, We practice permaculture too. So the idea is to build a food forest first and then let the rest take care of itself.
0: That's amazing. Awesome. Well, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope someday I can, I can come out and, you know, grab a little bite out of the food forest. Great. Yes. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm surprisingly coming to the end of my questions here. Um, so just one last question for today and it's, it's kind of, um, out of left field as we say here in the U S. Um, but you mentioned to me that, uh, you have this, sort of habit of reading and rereading ibn khaldun's um the muqaddimah i wonder if you could say a little bit about uh why this text is so important to you
1: because of his insistence on the scientific method you bust all myths you know you break them down so you can move forward he um The self-criticism, the fact that he would use the scientific method in analyzing history, for me was interesting because I find that same insistence on the scientific method in the art of Miles Davis, the great, because he, For him, music had to follow the scientific method, you know. His records, I don't think you can ever accuse him of pandering to the public taste, you know, or those records were like balance sheets, you know. They were like like snapshots of progress at a particular point in time you would take something and examine it scrupulously and bring out. So I can see the parallels between Goldun, Miles Davis, Archie Shep, for example, um, uh, a Senegalese uh, sculptor, Usman So, Ousmane so, as well, Bruce on Nobrakpaya of Niger. The, the you, you know, to do something well, you have to rigorously examine and then you have to also be studious. You must study it. So when you, when you read Mukadima, you see how Kaldun analyzed and set the template for modern history by using critical reasoning to debunk certain things, which you know, were being, were, were, were being held as fact before his time, just by asking questions and showing true reasoning and deduction. This can be true. So we owe him such a debt.
0: And on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing uh, some of your, your thoughts and your wisdom with me and your insights on on all these great artists and important issues.
1: Thank you very much, Adam, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed today's episode. You can find The Pointed Nose wherever you get your podcasts. To see today's interview in video form, visit our YouTube channel, Ophion Media. The Pointed Nose's theme song is Transponding by Albert Ortega.